Hello, and welcome to episode 80, 80 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talked to Eric Karaki as a part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series. The fact that the you the, the demographics of students in the U.S. are always shifting and changing because many international students are coming in and, and the student population now moving from the uh, homogeneous U.S. background into a kind of heterogeneous environment. So how then can we incorporate knowledges from these different backgrounds into our classroom? so that we decolonize the classroom space and not replicate systems of injustices in the classroom. So how do we open our borders, make our borders fluid so that um, students coming in wouldn't feel that it's a kind of trap hole that they have entered? You'll hear more from Eric in a bit. But first, I want to direct your attention to a new CFP from WPA Journal for their spring 2022 special issue, a tribute to Mike Rose. From the CFP, quote, As a scholar with over four decades of contributions to the field, Mike Rose set the stage for how the field of composition and rhetoric would grapple with basic writing and open access education. While it is impossible to quantify his impact, his broad reach is certainly evidenced by the 12 books he has authored and edited, over 60 articles in print, numerous book chapters, and his, un- and his uncountable speaking engagements. Throughout his life, Rose wrote prolifically on public education policies and reform often troubling the easy answers academics give themselves regarding how to foster intrinsically motivated learning. From lives on the boundary, to the mind at work, to back to school, Rose's work focuses extensively on socioeconomics and the impacts, challenges, and opportunities present in higher education for the working class in the United States. Rose brought attention to adult learners and reminded us all that class-based decisions regarding readiness to learn are nothing but a lack of imagination on the part of those in power. Questions of who we are and what we can do rest at the focal point of much, if not all, of the scholarship and writing program administration. And it is with this knowledge and respect to Mike Rose's leadership and contributions that we seek contributions to this special issue dedicated to the impact of his work. The purpose of this special issue is to honor the legacy of Mike Rose by providing the field with a rich, polyvocal resource for informing our vision for the future of writing program administration. In particular, we invite submissions from those who identify as working class, first gen, and or as from minoritized backgrounds who worked with Rose and or his contributions to the field in some of the following ways, including what challenges Rose's work in light of new developments and perspectives within the field. How might Rose's work be blended with emerging ideas across generational and or institutional lines? How does it demonstrate an understanding of the difficulties writers face based on class, race, economics, region? And how might we celebrate the impact of Rose's work in the areas of access, accessibility, community partnership, socioeconomic equity, justice, assistance, and or other of Rose's foci? Submit 500 to 750 word vignettes, polyvocal narratives, and or thought pieces that illuminate how threads of Rose's work are part of your tapestry of teaching, learning, and research. In your email, identify which question you addressed from the list above. In the words of Mike Rose, it is hope that drives the writing, hope that careful analysis and the right phrasing might, in some small, small way, open a space to think anew. 
we invite a symphony of writers to think anew on how Rose's work served to shape the past, present, and future of writing program administration. For queries or to submit a proposed draft, contact Angela Clark Oates, Aurora Matsky, and Sherry Rankins Robertson at WPAMikeRose at gmail.com. It's an understatement to call Mike Rose an important figure in our field. I am glad to see this recognition from WPA Journal. Eric Karanke recently earned his master's degree in English with a specialization in technical writing and rhetoric at Illinois State University after completing his bachelor's degree in English at the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology in Ghana. He is a writing instructor, an editor, a writer, and rhetorical analyst. As an instructor, he advocates the design of writing pedagogies shaped by globalization and culture, where students' diverse linguistic, cultural, and rhetorical traditions are valued as resources instead of problems. Eric's master's thesis was an autoethnographic study of his experiences as a teacher and a student in a first-year composition in Ghana. In this research work, he sought to acknowledge the pluralistic nature and relevance of writing traditions worldwide. Thus, the need for culturally responsive pedagogies and a new paradigm shift for inclusionary rhetoric and citizenship in the classroom. He is currently an online teacher of English and a sub-editor in the Hansard Department of Parliament of Ghana, where he edits the parliamentary debates. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Eric Karanke. Tell me, what's your name, your your uh, title, your role, your institution? What do you do there? Okay, thank you very much for your question. My name is Eric Nyama Crunchy. Um, except for the fact that in the U.S. you use only your first name and last name. And so I don't usually use the Nyoma in the U.S. But my full name is Eric Nyoma Crunchy. Yeah, uh, I currently hold a master's degree in English um, with my focus on technical writing and rhetorics from ISU, Illinois State University. So I would say that currently I'm a proud master's degree holder. In my current institution, I'm in the Parliament of Ghana. I am an editor at the official report department, also called the Hansard department. So we edit the parliamentary debates. We make sure it is near verbatim, it is, um, publishable in terms of the grammar, the structures, the construction, make sure it is um, matching up to the supposed standard English so that it will be devoid of any um, common errors, repetitions, um, redundancies. So basically our work is to edit the parliamentary debate. Yeah, so that's who I am. Tell me a little bit about the day-to-day activities of your job there, of your role. What do you do? Like, Okay, so um, within the Hansa department, we have different units. So I belong to the proofreading, and then sometimes I'm also called upon to work in the bound volume unit. So for the proofreading unit, the debate as in the original scripts, they go through a series of editors. And then before it goes out for the final publication, that is where the work of the proofreaders come in. So we make sure that we correct any errors that would have passed the ed- editing, the first editing, the second editing stage. We make sure that um, we dot all the T's, the, the I's and the J's. We make sure that um, any uh, initialisms are well spelled out, any acronyms are well spelled out. We make sure that there is um, 
respect for punctuation. So any kind of punctuation and mechanics, spelling, uh, numerals, numbers, we make sure that everything is in accordance with the Hansard style and then standard English, perhaps. So, and then in the bound volume unit, that is where all the scripts, all the daily Hansards that have been published, we put them together into one full volume. And so for parliamentary sitting, they usually meet in meetings. So from, let's say January to March constitute first meeting. And then they go on break or recess and then they resume from, uh, I think June, May, May to uh, somewhere in uh, July. That also constitutes the second meeting. And then the third meeting also begins from um, October to the latter part of the year. And so for the bound volume unit, we compile all these daily publications across the three meetings, and then we put them together as one. Then we re-edit and proofread everything that has been proofread during the uh, daily publications. So we would say that the bound volume unit does the final work of going through the work to make sure that everything is good, up to the standard of the Hansa department and then the parliamentary service in general. You're in Ghana right now for this interview, right? Yeah. What part of Ghana are you in? So I'm in Accra, Spintex. Um, Accra is the capital city of Ghana and then Spintex is very close to Tema, right? So that's where currently I am in my home. Yeah. <laughs> That's where you grew up. Is that where you grew up in Ghana? No, I grew up in Kumasi for all my life. My education, everything was done in Kumasi, in the Ashanti region of Ghana, which is one of the most populous regions in the country. But I had to move to Accra for my job, for the parliament job, before I left to uh, the US for my master's. Yeah, so when I came back, I came back to Accra again because of work. I see. Where did you do your undergraduate work at? And what was your area of study? Okay, so for my undergraduate studies, it was in Kumasi. It was in Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology. We usually uh, abbreviate it as uh, KNUSD uh, in Kumasi. So my area was in English. So uh, for us, the English program there is kind of um, multifaceted. And so you don't always specialize in one area. So we actually did a bit of literature, a bit of language, a bit of linguistics, a bit of everything that um, comprises the English language. So it kind of makes us more, more dynamic with regard to being able to function appropriately in every part of English language. Yeah, so for my thesis, I did something about creative writing. And so uh, I did an adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth into a Ghanaian setting. So I reconstructed the entire story to fit in the Ghanaian Ashanti context. So that was my thesis and it went so well. I enjoyed doing it because I I was able to um, put concepts into practice, uh, different cultures, trying to kind of situate different cultural backgrounds into that very same story. It was one good experience for me in creative writing. That sounds like a fascinating project. What were some of the like unique details, right, of that project? I guess, what did you take from Macbeth and move into the Ghanaian setting? Okay, so from my background study of the story of Macbeth, I realized that the the culture of Scotland actually shared some cultural semblance with my 
Ashanti setting. So the kind of inheritance that we do, the kind of uh, respect that we give to kinship, but in our context, we, we fall more on chieftaincy, right? So I realized that there were cultural similarities that I could actually deduce and then build my new story on. And so the subject line was almost the same, but different cultures, different concepts, different characters. And at the end of it, my thesis director was actually impressed because I had been able to keep the, the core of the story, but then because I employed different characters, different cultural, cultural understandings, I was able to generate a whole different uh, rhetorical understanding of the story of Macbeth. And then, uh, yeah, to me, it was, it was uh, a really good experience. Yeah. You graduated in 2013. And so then you spent five or six years in the field working. Is that when you started working for Parliament? So um, after I graduated in 2013, in Ghana, there is a compulsory one-year national service for every student who graduates from a tertiary institution. It's, oh. a way, it's a way to give new students the opportunity to have experience on the job for a year before if you get a job, you're able to kind of uh, switch or acclimatize into the job market. So there is a compulsory one-year national service for every student. So after I graduated, I had my national service, as we call it, in the Department of English, where I was a teaching assistant. So I was assigned to one lecturer whom I assisted in, in teaching and then sometimes organizing tutorials for, for students. So that ended in 2014. And then in 2014, between 2014 and 2015, I taught in a senior high school, English language, right? So that was also uh, another experience I had with teaching and pedagogy and how to, to, to set up my own course and then to be able to teach students. And so my work with Parliament actually started from December 2015. So the time that I left in uh, 2019, and then I've come back to it. When did you decide to pursue a master's degree in America? And how did you wind up at Illinois State University? Okay, so that is a very good question. I, when I was graduating from my undergraduate studies, my main focus was to pursue my master's degree. So I started applying for scholarships and schools. Actually, I got several schools. I got several scholarships, but it couldn't cater for my entire uh, tuition and accommodation and everything. So I had schools like Swansea, uh, uh, and a couple others, but the scholarship they were offering was not up to uh, uh, the tuition fees that I was expected. And because of my financial background being not that strong enough, I wasn't able to pursue it. So I decided to go into uh, a actual job to be able to work for some time to, to get some some amount of money to be able to help myself, even if I should get any uh, scholarship from any school. So my application with ISU, it came through my wife through a friend. So because my wife was already in the US, uh, I was looking for ways to also join, join her. And then she recommended the school to me through a friend who was at ISU, right? So it was the only school I applied for in 20, between 2018 and 2019. So I, I felt that I was qualified for it and I was, I was really hopeful that I would be called that I've had the, uh, the admission. So 
through several stages, being on the waiting list for some time and then finally being called. It was a great opportunity for me to get to ISU. When you arrived, you chose to pursue technical writing and rhetoric under the English studies model at ISU. And you took coursework that includes technical editing and writing, digital rhetorics, ancient rhetoric, some pedagogy classes. What was your master's thesis project? And how did it, how did it begin, right? How did you know that was the project you wanted to do? Okay, so yeah, thank you. This has been one of the amazing turnarounds for me through graduate studies. I had always been very anxious about project work because I set myself a very high standard to be able to meet all the uh, expectations of my thesis director or whoever is in charge. And so it was very, it was a big burden to me because I, I didn't know how I was going to be able to do a very good project to, that is worth a master's thesis in the US. And then I had so many areas of interest in technical editing, in cultural and translingual education. I had several, several research interests that I wanted to do my master's thesis on. And so I spoke to uh, Dr. Haas about it. She gave me several suggestions. I, I spoke to uh, Dr. Jang. The way I met Dr. Jang was a miracle because I, I took her course, um, theories and research in, in, in rhetorics, right? And so it was through uh, several encounters in class that she made a suggestion that I could do not a kind of contrastive study between my experiences in Ghana and in uh, the uh, ISU in US. She, she had the opinion that contrastive studies usually had a way of creating some sort of friction and some bias and some, and so I shouldn't do a contrastive study, but I could look at how my experiences in Ghana with regard to first year writing and then uh, composition studies could actually have an influence or how the US could learn from those experiences. So it kind of made sense to me because I realized that things were things in, in first year writing in the US were done a little differently from how I experienced it in Ghana. In Ghana, we called it uh, communication skills. And every tertiary student has to do it for a year, sometimes two semesters, other times just one semester. And then how it is conceptualized in Ghana against the background, against the background that Ghana is a, a former colony of Britain. And so we subscribe to the British English. And then right. because of that, because of that, there is that inclination to the English language, that standard British English. And so our course designs are modeled after the British English. And so I realized that coming into the US where there's also the American standard English and how things are done differently. I realized then I could do some study to know how these different transnational uh, backgrounds conceptualize first year writing. And then also I, I had done some readings from Horner and Lou and Machuda and uh, Jacqueline Jones and other people. And I realized that they had been arguing about the fact that the education system in the US is US centric and how their kind of internationalization is unidirectional. So the US is exporting their pedagogies, their ways of learning to outside it, but they were not importing 
similarly, uh, research areas, writing traditions and other stuff from non-US backgrounds. So I wanted to delve deeper into how the US can cross borders to be able to learn from other writing traditions about other places where sometimes we, we, we misappropriate as uh, less desirable places where we can actually learn and expand the focus of first year writing. So that is what inspired me to do the auto-ethnographic study of my experiences as a student and then as a teacher in first year writing in Ghana. Yeah. That that method, those methods, right? This autoethnographic method, that sounds fascinating because you get to actually dive into these sites where you are already a member, right? Uh, in your undergraduate and then your graduate studies. Yes, exactly. So it, it gave me that uh, intellectual space to do that mapping, to be able to trace the trajectory of how I've come to understand some of these um, and opinions of first year writing about pedagogy, differences about different ways of learning, different ways of conceptualizing learning, and even some of the areas that we, we kind of cover in uh, teaching of first year writing. More after this. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at the Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. So we know about some of your sites of analysis and your methods, but what about some of the conclusions of your project? Okay, so uh, some of the conclusions were on the fact that grammar had been been kind of neglected in most composition classrooms in the uh, U.S. because there is that assumption that uh, nativity in the language equates competence, and therefore students who come to our classes have that natural competence with regard to grammar. But I argue that um, nativity in spoken language is not necessarily synonymous to writing because nobody is a native writer of a language. We all learn to write. And so one of my conclusions was to, for us to kind of return to grammar because it forms the a fundamental part of the processes of writing. If we want our students to be able to turn out good writings, we cannot downplay the importance of grammar. We need to, to, to know that grammar plays a very crucial part in the writing process. Then I also uh, talked about the fact that research and the writing research should go beyond the US. That kind of um, cultural hierarchy where the US sits at the top and non- other non-Western backgrounds are kind of marching up to that kind of standard should be deconstructed because the, the 
uh, one of the writers that I, 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 I kind of uh, fell on throughout my thesis was Machuda. He argued that there's not one way of conceptualizing or doing things. There is always a multiplicity of ways that we can do something to reach a conclusion. And so it's not always the US purview or US way, which is the one and only way that things can be done. Other times too, we need to listen to the rhetorics from other people, right? The fact that we don't agree with them does not mean that there is no rationale or sense in their rhetoric. And so I concluded that the US should move beyond its borders to be able to learn from other cultural persuasions, other writing backgrounds. In so doing, we expand the, the radius of the conversation. The field of rhetoric needs to be expanded. And if it needs to be expanded, only the US purview cannot meet up to the cultural expectation of different publics. We need to learn to do some rhetorical listening that other people should be heard as much as they speak, right? So that was also another conclusion. Then I also argue that there's a need for professional training for graduate students, for, for teachers to be able to always update their capacities to learn new scholarship, to be able to kind of match up to every rhetorical situation of our, of our learning. And then uh, one aspect which was really important was the fact that we need to embrace translingualism because of the increasing numbers of international students coming into our classroom spaces. We need to be able to uh, learn to legitimize all kinds of languages that come into our classrooms so that our students do not feel like they have to leave a part of themselves at the door, that is their language at the door before they come into our, our classrooms. Language, culture, and thought are intrinsically inextricable. We cannot separate them, right? If you downplay the language of a person, you kind of downplay the identity of the person. So a language issue is a people issue. So anytime the, the issues about language is raised, we should have in mind that we are dealing with a people, their beliefs, their convictions, their traditions. So we need to be able to allow our students to, to, to feel free whenever it comes to their language, their cultures and all that. So these were some of the conclusions that I, you mentioned Machuda. What other scholars and or scholarship has been shaping you and guiding you, uh, your work intellectually? Okay, so uh, the first person whose work is really, uh, has really had an influence on me is um, Paul Pryor. I don't know if I get his name pronounced correctly, but it's piece about sociocultural theory of writing. That is what gave me the impetus to think about how culture shapes the way we write, how we, how, how writing actually exists in the world, not the way that we, we prescribe writing to be. And so it kind of resonated with me because when I was in Ghana and I was writing my composition works and all that, I didn't have to think about being understood by a lecturer or someone who doesn't come from my background. And so all the examples, the metaphors, the, the illustration that I used were well understood because we shared multi-membership. We belong to the same group and all that. But switching to transitioning to a different cultural background, I realized that some of my metaphors needed some further explanation before 
it was well understood. So it told me that the sociology of language comes to play whenever uh, a culture meets different culture. So talking about a cultural blend or meeting of different cultures and how we kind of negotiate to be able to understand one another. So it, it really shaped my, my thought about how I can even write for, for technocultural audiences, for different kinds of audiences, how I can meet the needs of my audience just by doing my audience analysis and all that. And then um, a writer like um, Jacqueline Jones uh, Royster, uh, some of the works about um, a landscaping metaphor. There was this uh, landscaping metaphor that she used about how our locations affect the way we think, the way we perceive things, and how our locations are really, really important in our scholarship, in our scholarly work. And then a couple others, uh, looming Mao, um, recontextualization, um, uh, a couple of others, um, Kandangaraja um, on translingualism and how we can legitimize different kinds of languages in our classroom. Um, I've mentioned Machuda already, uh, yeah. And then in Africa, Chinua Achibe and Wale Soinka, these are well-adapted scholars that have shaped my thought and, and writing. One of the things that I think is most interesting about your work is before breakfast lessons. Yeah. <laughs> what is Before Breakfast Lessons? When did you begin this project and why is it important? Okay, so against the background that Ghana is a former British colony and so we subscribe to the British English, British standard edited English, right? And so when I was in school at the undergraduate level, there was this program that we used to do, it was interdepartmental. Um, so different departments would showcase what they have. And so those in the sciences will, will, uh, will uh, display some of their uh, experiment and everything that they've done, their innovations and all that. And so for the Department of English, we were kind of correcting English, what to say, what not to say, some misused expressions, some misspelled words, some misused idiomatic expressions and all that. So it, it developed my love for the language and how to get it right in terms of pronunciation, in terms of writing, in terms of, of spelling and all that. So when I graduated from my undergraduate studies, I was looking for a way that I could use the language and the knowledge that I had acquired in English to impact others, how I could also help others to be able to use the language right. So I started it on WhatsApp. I used to share it to my contact list. And so each morning from Monday to Friday at 6 a.m., I'll send those lessons to them. So I was covering areas like idiomatic expression, a word a day, um, some conversational skills. If you want to interact with somebody in the English language, some of the appropriate words to use and all that. So it started on WhatsApp and then people began to have interest. So on a daily basis, I had several requests from people to, to send the lessons to them. So then, because the fans and readers, the base was broadening, I decided to create WhatsApp groups. So currently I have about 15 WhatsApp groups with about 250 membership in each of them. And then it was still um, not reaching other people who were not on WhatsApp. So I decided to create a Facebook page that currently has about 
about 11,000 uh, followers. So I shared the lessons on my personal wall on Facebook and then on my page before breakfast lessons. And then I do on Telegram as well. I share it to people who are also on Telegram. So basically it's me trying to impact the knowledge that I have acquired in school to people, to Ghanaians, to uh, different people across the world. Most of my fans are in, in uh, some African countries, in Cote d'Ivoire, in Nigeria, and other places. What I love about before breakfast lessons is that it kind of is this grassroots approach, right? To, to sharing knowledge uh, and among your, among your friends, among your different communities. Um, I think it's a fascinating idea. Where can folks find information on before breakfast lessons online? So currently I'm working, I'm working on getting a website for the, the before breakfast lessons. I don't have a website for myself, but other people who share my works on their website usually give me the credits and all that. So I'm trying to get my own platform. And then I have a YouTube page where I post visual lessons. And so if somebody is looking for me on YouTube, it is before breakfast lessons where I share some of uh, the lessons there. So I'm working on getting my, my website. And then on Facebook, it's before breakfast lessons. You can like the page and then follow us for all updates. Yeah. So what's next, Eric? What's next? What are you working on? on next? Publications, conferences? Are you considering the PhD? Okay, so currently I am looking forward to starting my PhD very soon. I believe um, um, I need to upgrade myself to the highest level to be able to learn always. And then there are some research areas that I'm really interested in that I would like to delve deeper into. So I'm looking at um, on pedagogy, I'm looking at how we can uh, design culturally responsive pedagogies. The fact that the, you, the, the demographics of students in the US are always shifting and changing because many international students are coming in and, and the student population now moving from the uh, homogeneous US background into a kind of heterogeneous environment. So how then can we incorporate knowledges from these different backgrounds into our classroom so that we decolonize the classroom space and not replicate systems of injustices in the classroom. So how do we open our borders, make our borders fluid so that um, students coming in wouldn't feel that it's a kind of trap hole that they have entered. So I'm, I'm looking forward to working on how we as instructors, as teachers can, can, can make our pedagogies flexible to be able to uh, meet up some of the expectations of international students. And then when it comes to um, digital rhetorics, I'm also looking at how um, we can bridge the digital divide. Uh, the coming of uh, the COVID-19 has taught us so many lessons, yeah. especially in my country where the technological advancement is on the low. So how do we bridge that digital divide? So through my scholarship, I'm looking forward to how we can provide answers to some of these issues that are kind of uh, affecting online education in the country. All right. And then I'm also looking forward to editing for different cultures. Um, so the experiences I had in technical editing with Dr. Haas shows that 
when you are editing for clients from different cultures, you need to take into consideration the, the cultural backgrounds, the understandings of the language and how the language works for them. And then you need to incorporate it in your editing. So I would like to also delve deeper into such areas and then, yeah, I have quite a, um, a lot of things that I want to talk about. And then also um, in the wake of citizen journalism and then ethical doxing, how do we uh, handle these areas? How do we uh, make sure that there's healthy, there's ethical citizen journalism on the internet, online, to make sure that people are not uh, uh, put at a disadvantage for doing some of these things. Yeah. It sounds like you have a lot of things that you're interested in, but they're all like directly related, right, to the work you've been doing. And and that's a smart scholar. Eric, Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about life at Illinois State. Now, I know you just finished up your master's degree, and I imagine that life in Bloomington, Illinois is quite different from life in Ghana. So tell us a little bit about your experience at ISU. So it's been one of the uh, watershed moments of my life, Um, living in a multicultural society where it's not only about the Ghanaian people you know, but people from different walks of life. I mean, the the way we talk, our interactions, the places we visit, the the systems, the systems actually are different, right? So when I came at ISU from the beginning, the transitioning wasn't that smooth. Um, having to travel with with train from and across Chicago to Bloomington. It was a huge toll on me, um, visiting family at Chicago and then coming back to campus and a whole lot. It was quite an experience for me. But um, later on, I became used to the system. I became used to how good the people were, how cordial, helpful that they were, especially my my faculty members. They were really helpful, very understanding group of people, Dr. Grima, Dr. Haas, Dr. Jang, Dr. Spadi, Dr. Babi, uh, Sherry, uh, Megan, these were wonderful people. Libby, almost everyone I encountered was ready to offer a helping hand. And these people contributed immensely to how I was able to adapt quickly into the system. And then the fact that my wife was also available actually played a key role. She was really supportive mm. and then, uh, she helped in 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 encouraging me in providing constructive feedback to my work to providing um, some of the things I needed and all that so um, the experience was great I learned several things I learned really 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 intense things because uh, interacting with somebody who doesn't really know your first language sometimes you communicate in the English language, but you feel if it were in your first language, you'll be able to be more vocal, be more uh, natural and all that. So these were quite little experiences that I acquired. But on the whole, it was a great experience. I loved ISU. I loved Illinois. I loved Bloomington Normal. The serene, quiet atmosphere was really helpful to my learning, to my peace of mind, to my health, to my growth as as a scholar. What are you doing this afternoon? So this afternoon, I was just at home resting and then preparing for what 
tomorrow. So I'll just relaxing at home with my wife. Yeah. Excellent. Eric, thank you so much for sitting with me for an interview. I really enjoyed learning from you today. All right. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Actually, I follow the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Facebook. So I listened to your interview with uh, Inkerica and quite and quite others. And so it's a great opportunity for me to be on this big platform to be able to share my work, my background, and a few things. So I'm really grateful, Charles. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Eric. It's always a treat to talk to people from Illinois State, my alma mater. He's so smart. And after his master's defense, I knew he was someone whose work I wanted to learn more about. Get this guy in a PhD program. Keep rocking out, Eric. This season of the Big Rhetorical Podcast is well underway. We're nearing the midway point. We have more emerging scholars from around the world lined up to join us. We have authors, activists, and of course, some established scholars in the field, all coming together in the podcast parlor to talk about their life and their work. Make sure you're tuning in. I'll be back next week with another new interview. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media, Exalt Digital Media, not-for-profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meharan, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Wakamal Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Grapes, and Septahelix. Helix.